Let us pray to the Lord, Lord have mercy. Illumine our hearts, O Master, who lovest mankind with the pure light of thy divine knowledge, and open the eyes of our mind to the understanding of thy gospel teachings, and plant in us also the fear of thy blessed commandments, that trampling down all carnal desires we may enter upon a spiritual manner of living, both thinking and doing such things as are well-pleasing unto thee. For thou art the illumination of our souls and bodies, O Christ our God, and unto thee we ascribe glory together with an unoriginate Father, and thine all holy and good and life-giving Spirit, now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. Christ is in our midst. He is in our Amen. Okay. <clears throat> so I mentioned the book Wounded by Love in today's homily. Has anyone had a chance to look at this or read this book? Yeah, it's an incredible gift, I think. Um, I've been reading more. There are more books that are being translated about St. Porphyrios. And uh, I think that reading about him can be a little overwhelming. Uh, On the one hand, because of all the miracles that surround his his life, his clairvoyance, his insight, and then many people even during his lifetime thought he was crazy. That sounds familiar. People have already always thought that Christians are crazy. They thought that about the founder of Christianity. Um, but uh, but also um, his his incredible humility uh, is is really touching, and I think that's more important than anything else in reading the life of Saint Porphyrios is that from a very young age he wanted to follow Christ, and he decided to. And then the gifts that came followed. But he didn't, who cares about the gifts? Like, when, you have the, when you're in the embrace of the giver, you don't care about the, the gifts. You just want the you want God. So it's important for people who are interested in orthodoxy, learning about it, and maybe those who are orthodox, to realize that we don't fixate on the miraculous. Even though in the lives of the saints, we see it really a continuation of the miraculous work that Christ began. We see that the way that um, he exercises his lordship over creation by the grace of the Holy Spirit. Of course, he, he can, because he's the creator. And I like to reference the, the word of Christ himself, who talked about those who would come after him doing even greater things than the things he has done. So we we shouldn't be too surprised. We read all kinds of miracles in the lives of the, excuse me, in the New Testament through St. Paul and the apostles. And then there's a tendency to want to demythologize, so to speak, the miracles that take place from the apostolic era up to the present. Or... (laughs) On the other hand, over over fixate on miracles. And what happens with people is that sometimes they start uh, chasing miracles and they start seeking the gift rather than the giver, you know, and which is another form of idolatry, loving the creation rather than the creator, it's himself. But uh, but you'll see a correction to that in the lives of the saints, especially those like Saint Porphyrios who are just humble. Who, who could have uh, self-advertised and really you know, impressed a lot of people with their skills and abilities. 
But even in the life of St. Porphyrius, he would say, sometimes God gives me the gift and sometimes he doesn't. People would come see him and he would tell them what was going on in their life. And he'd tell them what they should do. And then other times people would come and see him and he would say, I don't have it today. I don't know why. And I don't think he'd be terribly upset if he never had it again either. Because something precious happens when people fall in love with Christ. They just want to be with him. That's actually one of the crises that many of the saints have is that they just want to be with Christ all the time. St. Paisios had this problem too. I just want to be in on my knees in prayer with our Savior nonstop. And now people want to come and see me. What am I supposed to do? I don't want to do it. That means I probably should. <laughs> and that's a, a lot of times that's a good criterion for... Um, developing discernment. If there's something that is good and selfless that we're resisting doing, I don't want to do it. A lot of times it means that I should. <laughs> so <clears throat> I gave a homily about that a while back. I called it, do what you do not want to do. Of course, referencing St. Paul, who talks about that. So I, um, this book by St. Porfirios called Wounded by Love is a great gift to our time. He's a contemporary saint. And we have pictures of him even. There aren't any pictures in this book. There's one up, maybe one, one at the beginning. Yeah, but throughout, there's just one little black and white picture. But we have many pictures. You can look them up online. And uh, he's worth getting to know, St. Porfirios. So... Um, has anyone read anything recently that was particularly inspiring or helpful to you? I'm reading uh, On Wealth and Poverty by St. John Chrysostom. Oh, yeah, a collection of quotes by St. John Chrysostom. Some of his lectures, yeah. Yeah. Our, Our, same book, actually. Really? Yeah. Oh, I'm thinking of on simplicity. There's one on simplicity that's a collection of quotes, but then on wealth and poverty is homilies, yeah, it's right? Yeah, like a dozen homilies. Yeah. On different topics. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Anyone else reading anything good, helpful? Father Arseny. Father Arseny? You're reading it for the first time? For the first time. Okay. Good. There's a second Father Arseny book that's really good too, that you would probably like to read on the heels of, you know, the first one, Father Arseny, and the second one is called Father Arseny, A Great Cloud of Witnesses. And it's all about his little, his little group of kind of disciples who spent a lot of time with him. It's a really good book. Anyone else? Acquiring the Mind of Christ by Father Sergius. Yeah. The Beginnings of a Life of Prayer by yeah, Father Irenae Steenberg, too. Yeah, those, those ones are on our reading list. Yeah, good, cool. Well, thank you for sharing. Um, let's, uh, let's get started talking about our, today's session topic, which is uh, the foundation of the Orthodox faith. And this is still all I have as far as books. I haven't ordered more yet. But uh, if you guys want to just grab every couple people to follow along, you don't really need to follow along, but you can
So we'll start with chapter one. What page is it in your book? It's called Chapter One, The Foundation of the Orthodox Faith. Forty-one. Forty-one? Okay. And it looks like no one's tuning in online, so I'll just go off with the Zoom. All right. So as the body of Christ, the church is mankind's participation in the unending life of the Holy Trinity. So we don't just believe in the Trinity, but the idea, at least, that we're aiming for, the experience that we're aiming for, is participation in the very life of God, who is love, who is a communion of persons and, ent- and created us to, to enter into communion with him. God became man so that man might become God. This is a famous saying by St. Athanasius of Alexandria, 4th century. Now, speaking to, you, to a contemporary audience, especially from a Western background, people would say, well, you can't, you can't become God. That's true. Kind of. You can't become what God is by essence, by nature. Um, but you can become, you can enter into communion or be conformed to the likeness of God by the grace of the Holy Spirit. And enter into communion, not only have a relationship with God, but enter into communion with God. He created us to be what He is by grace, what He is by nature. And so we're not trying to say that we become uncreated, that we become deities, but that we enter into communion with God. But this is probably one of the most famous and distinctive theological teachings, that God became man so that man might become God by St. Athanasios, and it really sums up the message of orthodoxy. God created mankind in his own image so that mankind might become like God, sharing in his eternal divine life. There are a couple of essential characteristics that, that we always mention when we talk about um, what it means to be man. What's the word we use for the study of what it means to be a human? Does anyone know? Anthropology. Do you know where that comes from? I don't. Anthropology. Comes from... Um, comes from the, the Greek word anthropos, which means man or human. So anthropology is the study of what it means to be human. And there are two um, distinctive characteristics, we would say, anthropologically speaking, of what it means to be a human person. Do you know what those are? There are two words from the creation account. No? Good guess. Image and likeness. likeness. Yeah. So two things that are distinct of anthropos, of man, 
unlike any other creature that the creating created in the image and according to the likeness of God. And these are two themes that we'll be talking about consistently throughout um, our time together, throughout our catechism. What the distinction is between image and likeness and how even understanding what um, these two things mean of really reveal our experience of, of the Christian life. So continuing on. God's goodwill toward his creatures was not limited to the act of creation, however. Seeing that man was unable to realize the likeness of God in himself because of his sinfulness. So what is what is like what what do you think likeness means? In simplest terms as you can think of. To act like something. To be like, to be like. I mean it's very simple, like to become like something. Um, the image we would say is that is this indel, indelible um, feature of what it means to be a human person, inalienable. Some of the praise, prayers say, or indelible. Um, that's that's a gift that cannot be taken away. We can never cease to be as having been created. I like to say to make it sound kind of fancy. We can never not be as having been created. We've we've been brought into existence by God because of His love for us. And that unique love that God has for us makes us unique persons. That can't be undone. And that's what it means to be in the image of God. But also because of God's great love for us and his desire to give us freedom, he's given us the ability to to respond to his love, to enter into communion with him by choice. And that willful decision to, to unite ourselves to God is what it means to become conformed to the likeness of God. So we'll nev- we will never exhaust the discussion of what it means as a, a human person to be in the image and likeness of God. So you could say in a way, image is what we are and likeness is what we have the potential to be. And do you think then, I mean, some of you have heard me say these things over and over again already, but do you think then that there's any end to this process of becoming conformed to the likeness of God. No. No. It's endless. Why? Why would being conformed to the likeness of God be an endless process? Why not? Yeah. God's uncreated without beginning and without end. And so we see... We see what um, Father Zacharias um, Zakaru calls a like an ever dynamic increase. Or to quote Saint Paul, from faith to faith, you just continue to grow from one change to enter into communion with the uncreated God forever. It's an ever deepening relationship, you could say, but even better than relationship, which has kind of a a relative. It's like as if you and I are just a little step closer to one another. Closer, a little closer. You know, we're inching toward one another. It's not a proximal thing. It doesn't have to do with our um, spatial relation. It has to do with uh, the essence of our identity being ever united to the essence of the uncreated God, which is incredibly beautiful. So, okay. 
I interrupted mid-sentence. So God's goodwill toward his creatures was not limited to the act of creation. However, seeing that man was unable to realize the likeness of God in himself because of his sinfulness, God sent his own son, the very image of his person. That word from um, Hebrews 1.3, image, anytime you hear that word image in the New Testament, it's the word icon in Greek, icon, icon. Um, So, He sent his own son, the very image of his person, into the world to take human nature upon himself and to restore it to its original glory in the image of God. In other words, God, the creator of all things, became man so that we might become like him. In the words of the liturgy of St. Basil, he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being likened to the body of our lowliness, so that he might liken us to the image of his glory. And this is known as theosis, or deification. So the orthodox view of salvation is, uh, um, I almost wrote the same thing twice, is uh, that of theosis, a union with God. This is why the world was created. This is why you were born. And this is the the truth of the Orthodox faith that has been a a part of the belief of the church from the beginning. And there's an excellent little pamphlet that Father James Bernstein wrote that we have out in the narthex called The Original Christian Gospel. If you haven't read his book, Surprised by Christ, which is a his own personal story and theological journey, which is helpful. I call it a bridge book, kind of, because he he went from being Jewish to converting to Protestantism, and he was a founder of um, Jews for Jesus, and he did street ministry. He was a part of uh, the uh, the Jesus movement in Berkeley, you know, kind of hippie, baptizing people in the fountain, you know, on 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 campus, the university in Berkeley. And then later, wanting to go deeper, and he discovered orthodoxy. So he, he traces that journey. It's a helpful book. But some portions of his book have actually been published as little individual pamphlets and things that we have. Um, we have many different pamphlets out on the narthex on different topics that people are always wondering about. And his, called The Original Christian Gospel, is really helpful. It's a, it's a good one. So... But what does it mean to become like God? Or to be, to quote St. Peter, um, 2 Peter 1.4, to become a partaker of the divine nature. When the church answers this question, she's engaging in what we call theology, which literally means a word about God or talking about God. I remember um, we we hosted a, a farmer's market at the church I grew up at. I went to a really big church, like like 3,000 people or something like that. And that seems pretty big, doesn't it? Um, and they would have all their little vendors come um, with the bread and the fruits and veggies and things. And then one of the older, more mature guys had a, his own little stand. And he just, it just said, God talk on there. Come and talk to me about anything, you know, but God talk. And uh, that's when I think of theology. It just means like our discourse, our ability to speak about God. 
Of course, you know that there's a limitation to our ability to speak about God because God can't be, dis- can't be defined, even though he has revealed himself. But the language we use is always imperfect, especially because the ones interpreting the language that's being used is o- are always imperfect. Uh-oh, you know, that's why we have to be careful. And that's why we need to trust those who have gone, be- gone before us, who are wise and who have not only come to a heightened theological understanding so that they can say really neat and solid and sound things about God, but who have actually lived the life in Christ, who have become conformed to the likeness of God. So the church is able to make statements about God because God has revealed himself to mankind. So the source of theology, we would say, the source of our ability to talk about God Any guesses of what it is? What gives us the ability to speak about God, the uncreated God? How can a creature even speak about the uncreated? Grace. Okay, that's a good answer. Because he came as man? Yeah, because he has, he's revealed himself. Revelation. And we're not talking about the book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, but... The, the reason that we can know the God from whom we have separated ourselves is because he's revealed himself to us. And why has he revealed himself to us? Any guesses? Love. Love, because he loves us. And that's, that's at the core of everything. Everything is about God's love. It's not just about pulling us out of the mud and cleaning us off so that we don't feel sorry for ourselves, we can overcome shame and, or, get, or get into heaven, so to speak, but so that we can enter into a loving communion with God himself. So he became man in order to accomplish this. So the church is able to make statements about God because God has revealed himself to mankind. Through his act of creation, through his many acts of mercy and displays of power throughout history, as recorded in the Bible, and specifically in this ascending of his son, Jesus Christ, God has made himself known to those whom he had created in his own image. To quote the psalmist, deep calls unto deep. There's a depth within us calling out for something. For, and the depth of the uncreated love of God is the only thing that can adequately respond to the cry of the depths of our hearts. Thus, the church's theology, what she says about God, is based upon what God has revealed about himself. And that's why we approach it humbly, and that's why people can't go around making things up about God. There is room, I don't want to go on a big tangent, but there is room to to talk about personal... um, in a, a unique experience that you had of God's love, something very intimate and personal. Um, that happens in the church, but it's never at odds with the teaching of the church that God has revealed. Like if someone were to say, I had a really beautiful encounter with God and, um, and I believe now that God is a, a, a woman. You know, you'd say, well, huh, interesting. You know, maybe you could relate to God in a tender way. Maybe there's a tenderness, a, you know, a kind of selfless love, like, like a mother, that, that maybe 
women would understand, but it doesn't mean that God is a woman, neither is God a male. So that would be inconsistent. A person's unique experience of God as love cannot, they have, it, it, it's kept in check to where someone can't say, well, now I've experienced such a tenderness, like a motherly love that all of a sudden, now God is a, a female to me. You know, I saw a bumper sticker um, the other day that said um, something like, God is really angry and she's pissed. Or something like that. I was like, I was like, that isn't okay. Interesting. <laughs> so, that wouldn't be consistent with the Orthodox teaching, for example. And it, because it's not consistent with God's self-revelation, um, especially in the church. So that being said, I just want you to know, like, the experience of the life in Christ is, is not just about wrapping your head around the, the doctrinal teaching, but... We accept that God has revealed himself in such a way that that gives us the allows us to operate within the confines that we need. Otherwise, we we become our own gods, to be honest. We turn God into whatever we whatever we want. God becomes a projection of who we are, rather than someone who has revealed himself in Christ, by the grace of the Holy Spirit, through the inspired teachings and hymns of the church. So, everything is based on what God has revealed about himself. And for this reason, when the church answers the question, what does it mean to become like God? She doesn't look to the theories of modern psychology or sociology to answer. Rather, she turns to the teachings of the life of her Lord. And there are some scripture passages in here that are quoted from the the King James Version, and I've noticed that the, reading them out loud can be a little be a little clunky for people sometimes because of the, the older style language. So I have a different translation um, that I can bring up to read out loud. But we hear in Matthew eleven twenty seven, All things have been delivered to me, Christ is speaking. All things have been delivered to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. So the foundation of everything the church believes and teaches is the fact that God is not some impersonal essence or philosophical principle, but the Father who exists in an eternal communion of love with his Son and with his Spirit and who speaks to those whom he has created face to face, we hear in Exodus, as a man speaketh to his friend. A person as opposed to an individual exists only in relationship to other persons. Do you remember the story I told you about Elder Emilianos? I know I have some, some uh, stories on shuffle, you know, when I do catechisms and things, but about Elder Emilianos talking to one of his disciples and the elder, an elder, for those of you who, who don't know, an elder is usually like a respected monastic or an older person who's considered to be wise, particularly wise. Um, and he was a monk on Mount Athos and a well-known speaker and where Elder Emilianos would give a lot of extemporaneous talks that were recorded on cassette tape. 
easy contemporary. And uh, they're slowly being transcribed and translated into English. So many beautiful uh, books already based on the, the talks that Elder Emilianos gave. We have lots of interesting names, too, in orthodoxy. So maybe I need to write things like this on the board. Elder Emilianos. And all the words in Greek are accented, so if I have one that has a particular uh, accent, I'll, I'll add it. But Elder Emilianos, and he's from uh, Simonopetro Monastery, Monapos. It means Peter's Rock, and it was founded by, um, by a, a saint named St. Peter of Athos. So, um, anyway, Elder Emilianos was with one of his disciples, and he looked at his disciple in the way that only a, uh, you know, a sage kind of can do. He said, why did God put your eyes right here? Do you guys remember? Why did God put your eyes right here? And Father Father Yakovos uh, is like, what does he want me to say? I don't know, you tell me. You're the elder. You know, he's thinking in his mind. He said, you tell me, you know, elder. Do you guys remember? So that you can see the other person. See, that's what it means. He said, and that's what it means to be a person. You have to look into a mirror to see your own reflection. All you have to do is look forward to see another person. So our personhood is is defined by our ability to see one another, to be in relation to one another, not to look in a reflection and see ourselves and fix our eyebrows and comb our hair. I'm not saying that, you know, caring about your appearance is terrible, but there is a reason why like if you go to St. John Monastery in Goldendale, you're going to have a hard time finding your reflection anywhere. No mirrors in the bathrooms. Well, isn't that like a popular secular view, like to love yourself as if that was possible? Yeah, that's right. <clears throat> and actually self, self-love, technically speaking, is, a, is kind of a misnomer. Because if you read the writings of the fathers of the church, um, they'll say one of the... One of the things at the core of the fallen human condition is what they call philoptia. Um, like from the word, um, like philanthropic, you know, philanthropic means love of mankind, like generosity. Um, Avtia is, we get the word like auto, autobus or automobile. So I'm thinking, I'm doing Spanish at the same time, so autobus means a, a bus, but auto means self. So love of self. But now self, like people use the language of self-care. There's a difference, I would say. It depends on what you mean when you're saying it. Because you could be a, like doing self-destructive things that are affecting other people. And you need to kind of take care of it. So you need to get some sleep. Take a shower. The people. Like I was with a guy. I used to supervise volunteers as a, my last job before I became a priest. And I had a, a really wonderful guy, but he had like hygiene problems and I had to t- talk to him about that. So t- telling him that, you know, that he needed to work on that kind of self-care 
was not uh, the same as self-aggrandizing. You know what I mean? But the idea of self-love, we would technically say that it is a misnomer, that it's an incorrect term. Because we are called, we believe, personhood comes from being able to fulfill the two commandments of Christ. Does anyone know what the two commandments of Christ, the two main commandments of Christ are? Love God and love others. And it's kind of cool to see, we call it the vertical and the horizontal. It's like, love God. So here I am. Here I am. See? Here, I'll put a little beard on there. Um, Love God. Here I am on the ground. And love others. And that's our life. It makes the sign of the cross. (laughs) The cross reminds us. We call it the cruciform life. It's not a cross if it's just vertical. It's not a cross if it's just horizontal. The whole of our life can be found right, right in the image of the cross here. Our relationship with God and our love for others. It's pretty beautiful. Just a simple little connection. But, okay. I always do this and then I lose my spot. Oh, what it means to be a person. So... So for God, this relationship of person to person is eternal. That's the way that God can be love, because there is no love without persons. Like a, a, a mono, a single deity would be, I heard one, one uh, theology teacher say, um, would be like a monster, all power, out to just do, do his own will, to exercise authority and to control And that's the God of Islam. All power, all authority, all control. And people are looking for an answer. They're looking for truth. And so it's interesting that there's this phenomenon of people being drawn to that because we don't know how to find our way and we want someone to tell us the way in which we should walk. And our free will is so screwed up. Forgive me, but like our free will is so out of whack that sometimes it would be easier to just have someone take it away from me and make the decisions for me rather than undergoing the process of having my free will healed so that I can freely enter into a relationship of love with God. But there is an appeal to that kind of monotheism that is present in Islam where you just follow the rules and you get to you get a you know a reward. That's a lot easier than struggling to love others, you know, and entering, entering into communion. But God is a communion of three persons, not just two mutually satisfying, you know, individuals, persons satisfying one another's interests. But in, when you add the, th- the th- third person, you have a true commun- community, a communion of persons loving one another. And so if God is love, God does have to be a communion of persons. And that's one of the essential beliefs of orthodoxy and of the Christian faith. Yeah. Sorry, um, so before Jesus was born, yeah. was it just God had in them the Holy Spirit? Like, no, it, no. Would... So, so one, of the, one of the teachings of St. Athanasius, um, who said that God became man so that man might become God, he was dealing with a a heresy called Arianism, 
that is present in certain groups like Jehovah's Witnesses that say that Christ was created. But Christ is the, the we call him the pre-eternal word of God. So the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are equal, equally uncreated in an eternal communion with one another. But when he became man, he was he, out of his love for us, he became manifest on earth. And we're going to do a, a whole chapter on the incarnation too. But the, the line from St. Athanasios is, there, there never was a time when he was not. And they were saying, well, he's, he, was create, he came into existence. Therefore, he's maybe the best creation of God. But then he wouldn't be one with God. And therefore, he could not have healed our humanity. We'll get into more detail with that. But we do believe that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Trinity, are that is that is God. The Trinity is God, a communion of three persons without beginning, without end. Father Jeremiah. Yeah. I always that's something, you know, since I was young, I always kind of try to, you know, wrap that same thought. And you can't. And you can't. Yeah. The only thing that I always got to it is was when when before God created, you know, humans, right? When he said, Let us make men in our own image. In our own image, and yeah. Let us make God in let us make men mm-hmm. in our own image. That means and how they try to restore it, especially in all witness, mm-hmm. that he was talking to the angels. And I'm thinking, no. No, he mm-hmm. wasn't talking to the angels. Or some people would say it's the royal we. He was, no, because he was, let us make men in our own image. That yeah. means he was talking, like, you know how sometimes we're talking to ourselves? Yeah. Uh, in, in loud voice? <clears throat> yes. So I always thought about it that way. So when uh-huh. somebody told me, well, why are you thinking that way? And I said, well, because that's the way... You know, when he comes yeah. to me, let us make men in our yeah. I always... So the Orthodox it. teaching is that the, the plural is the three persons of the Trinity. Yeah. Our so image. Let yeah. us make us. Our image. He is talking yeah. us. That's exactly I mean, right. To us, to himself, as a third, as multiple. And everybody yeah. always looks at me kind of crazy. And I'm like, you know, because I can talk to myself, <laughs> as me, myself, and I. <laughs> oh, God, <laughs> it's my God, he can talk. I mean... Yeah. One, of course, it's not like it's this. There's three guys sitting at a poker table in the sky saying, "Hey, uh, let's do something. Let's make man." You know what I mean? Like it's any time we speak about God again, we're going back to the idea of revelation. So it's God out of His love for us, revealing something to us about Himself or about themselves. You could say, but we usually refer to God as just Himself. You know, but. Um, that God is God is revealed that we were created Correct. That's that way. Correct. That's something that I was always hard on, you know, trying to explain it to somebody else because it was hard for me to be like, okay, so men were not created yet. So the whole point of let us make men in our image because Christ is going to come in the image of man to for salvation because God knows, perceives, and mm-hmm. seen ahead of time. So we yeah. were humans. You know, the Savior, which is Jesus Christ, the, you know, God the Son, mm-hmm. was coming in the image of men to say, hey, you know, connect us men and God. Right. To, to unite, unite divinity and to unite divinity and humanity yeah, in correct. himself. To yeah. unite us back yeah. to show us that 
we are united. Like you could say he, he came down in order to lift us Correct. up. You know? St. Paul up. says, how can we say he ascended if he didn't descend first? And that's what happens in the incarnation. So, and we'll talk, we'll get into more detail about the incarnation too um, as we go. But um, so, <clears throat> continuing, let's see where, I, where was I? <laughs> so for God, okay, this relationship is eternal. For the Father is never without his Son and his Spirit. So love is an attribute, um, is not, excuse me, love is not an attribute or a characteristic of God. It defines his very being. God is love, we hear in 1 John 4, 8. This is the meaning of the doctrine of Trinity, that God is love. According to the book of Genesis, mankind was created in the image of God, this God of personal love. Thus, we're two and we, we too are inherently personal beings. We were created to love as God himself loves. We hear in 1 John 4, 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Our creation in the image of God is the foundation of our very being and determines the purpose for our existence. This means that for man to be truly human, to be what he was created to be, he must attain to the likeness of the Holy Trinity, Man, says St. Basil the Great, 4th century, is a creature, creature with orders to become God, no less. It's clear, however, that mankind has failed miserably in his divine appointed task, divinely appointed task. Instead of growing in the likeness of God, we've cast ourselves into the likeness of the devil. So one thing that has that about human freedom that I like to mention, and I'll probably mention again and again, is if we have if we are free beings and we have and we do believe along with being created in the image of likeness and unlikeness of God comes also then free will. We truly believe, deeply believe in free will in the Orthodox Church. If we have the freedom to choose to enter into communion with God for all of eternity, which is the best. You know, enter into love freely to go that direction that we also have the freedom to go the other direction. And who knows how terrible that could be. But that's, what the, that's what's at stake. In order for us to enter, to freely be able to enter into an unending communion with the Holy Trinity also means that we have to have the potential of freely separating ourselves from God, which is very scary, you know. <laughs> makes us want to take life a little more seriously. It made St. Siloan cry just, just to think that anyone could, could or would choose to, to separate themselves from the love of God. He didn't want to believe that anyone would, but he knew because God has dignified us so much with his image, with freedom, that it was a possibility. So that's why we have certain saints who just... who who weep, you know, cry for the salvation of the world that we live in. So our creation in the image of God is the foundation of our very being. No, I already read that, sorry. <laughs> it's clear, however, that man has failed. Okay, I already read that. Okay. We have used our God-like freedom to turn away from Him. That's where we're at. Rather than toward Him in love. Man of himself cannot bridge the gap between his creatureliness and the uncreated glory of God. 
nor can he remove the effects of his own sinfulness. In short, mankind is not capable of becoming what he was created to be, a participant in the life of the Holy Trinity. If mankind could not ascend to heaven and unite itself with God, then it remained for God to come down to earth and unite himself with mankind. Jesus Christ, the eternal Son and Word of God, and in Greek, you sometimes you hear the word, this word logos. Logos. Um, it's sometimes it's translated as word, most often. Like in the beginning of the Gospel of John, in the beginning was the word, and the word was God, and the word was with God. Um, logos doesn't just mean like a spoken word. It means idea, principle, act. One priest said it's like God's, Thing like the thing of God, you know what what God is doing, and it actually is the conveyance of who God is, God's being. So logos is more; it doesn't just mean a spoken doesn't it word. Like creation being spoken into Yeah, exactly. Yeah, right. That's right. Okay. Okay, I lost my spot again. I'm really bad at this. Okay. Do you guys know where I was? Well, I don't have page numbers here. Um, so, okay, man could not unite himself. Jesus Christ, the eternal... Jesus Christ, the eternal Son and Word of God, became man and lived a human life so that mankind might fulfill the end for which he was created, union with God. So we hear in John 1.14... And the word became flesh. So that word is the logos, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. This is the meaning of the doctrine of the incarnation, that the word of God became fully human without ceasing to be fully God. By taking our humanity upon himself, God also assumed all of the consequences of our sinfulness, it was not enough that he merely appear as man or that he take upon himself only the higher aspects of our nature. For as St. Gregory the theologian said, what is not assumed is not healed. So there's this idea <clears throat> that there was no aspect of our humanity that Christ did not take on. He took on everything that it means, body, soul, spirit, Mind, thought, will, you know, there, and there have been many heresies. It's, okay, well, maybe he was, he became, fully became man, but I mean, he, but he didn't have a human will, only a divine will. And if there's a distinction between divinity and humanity, creator and creation, which there is, then we have to fully say that in order, in order for God to unite divinity and humanity and overcome the chasm that we've created um, between us and him, then he had to assume all that we are. So we say he's fully God and fully man. Fully God and fully man after the, at the incarnation. So he wasn't man before the incarnation took place. He was and is and always has been God. But he did what was seemingly impossible, which is one of the distinctive features of God's love for us. That the, that the creator became 
what he wasn't <laughs> without ceasing to be what he is. It's, and it's a mystery that God could unite himself to our humanity in order to reclaim humanity, to enter back into communion. And the way he did it was becoming a man himself, assuming all that we are, which means subjecting himself to corruptibility, to the unkindness, the harshness of the world, and even death. Yeah. Do you think on that uh, fully, fully God, fully man discussion, do you think that you know, maybe in the next century or two, the Oriental and the Eastern Orthodox will kind of come to an agreement? That's a really interesting question. Yeah. I mean, it would be really nice. Yeah. Because there was, the, yeah, I mean, you're, you're, you're getting at the... Um, this is a fine distinction. Yeah. The way they talked about it. Yeah. There was a there was there was a, a schism between the the Orthodox Church and what are called the the Oriental so-called Orthodox churches like the uh, the Coptic and the Ethiopian and Armenian and others who had um, who didn't accept what's called the Chalcedonian definition that that uh, that that Christ is um, of one essence with the Father of the same nature as God. They would. There was a a distinction in their terminology of one letter, and I don't want to get too into the weeds. But um, when we were talking about the person of Christ in the early ecumenical councils, they would say he is of the same essence, of one nature with the, the Father. Is how we talked about Christ being fully God. And they, instead of saying, um, so, homoousios, which means of the same nature or the same you know, essence, um, they use the word, it's like homoousios, homoousios, which is homoousios, um, meaning of a similar nature with the Father. Yeah, yeah, they didn't accept the the Chalcedonian definition of of like like we use. So they yeah. have their own um, you know, yeah, I don't know. I don't even know what they use. I, I just know. And but they're, they're like it's like we're similar but different, and we would like to say like that the similarities are strong enough to where we could they that we're we're closer than you know orthodoxy would be with any other version of Christianity, but the reality is there was still a schism, unfortunately. And it would take a lot to heal that. Because what happened is they anathematized some of our saints. And we anathematized, anathematized some of their saints because of this theological disagreement about who Jesus Christ is. And so people will say, oh, it's a terminological distinction and that's all. But no, you don't, you don't just divide into two separate bodies um, over a mere terminological distinction. And so it would take a lot of healing because now it's been, you know, almost two millennia of the canonical Orthodox churches being in communion, having saints of their own and the Oriental churches having their own life, culture, and identity. So it would take a lot of work and a lot of humility. You know, Father Thomas Hopko wrote a paper on this, 
speculating what that union would look like. And I can't tell you whether or not it's, um, it's inevitable or, you know, I do, do I think it's possible? Yeah, I think it's, I mean, absolutely possible there to be a, be a union, but I think it, it would be quite a miracle. Um, we'd have to undo a lot of the damage that has been done in the past and then figure out what that means for us liturgically because we serve different services, you know. Um, there are similarities but differences, and so it would take a lot of commitment and a lot of time. I can't help but to think, I think you and I were talking about it a little bit too, that uh, that being harshly persecuted will have a way of um, forcing unity <laughs> among among believers. I think a lot of people will be willing to change what they believe in order to be accommodated. Well, we don't really know what I mean that much about Jesus, and it's is it that big? Of, what if I just focus on what he means to me? Okay, that's fine as long as you don't push it on anyone else. But I think under persecute times of persecution, uh, Christianity has actually thrived, and I I actually think that, and I. I pray that if and when persecution does break out, then we will experience uh, unity on essentials. Because to be a Christian will will mean that you're choosing life or death, depending on how you define life and death, life on earth or life in eternity. You know, but uh, it it will be interesting to see if and when that happens. Um what happens to Christian unity. And I think there will be, undoubtedly, there will be a false sense of unity too. I mean, you know, there's discussion about a one world church and so on and so forth and a lot of compromise. But I, couldn't, I don't know if it's Canada or, or even America, but there were some mall cops that were kicking people out just for praying. Oh, or, yeah, yeah, I saw. Or having a t-shirt that says something about Jesus on them. Yeah, I saw that clip. You saw that clip? Yeah. I investigated it a little bit, and it, the claim was that he was getting kicked out of the mall for wearing a church that said, like, Jesus is the only way or something like that. But it turns out that he, had, he was going around the day before um, with pamphlets trying to, trying to evangelize people, and they said, you, you can't do that here. And they gave him a warning and he kind of persisted. So there was a little bit of a history there too. But, uh, but the, these are interesting times that we live in. And it seems like one of the only, one of the only faux pas these days, so to speak, is, is to really be like a really committed Christian who believes in traditional Christianity. Um, so I don't know. We'll see what happens. But that's a good question. I mean, I, there's, there's a part of me also that just says there's so much that's beyond our comprehension that God will work. He, he will do what we cannot do, you know, in the end. But is there potential for unity on this side of eternity? I think, I think there's, there's the potential for it. But see, it cannot be a unity with, with um, compromise on essential beliefs. It can't be an agree to dis- disagree scenario. Especially when you're talking about what we call Christology, who you believe Jesus Christ to be. Because when you're talking about who you believe Christ to be, you're talking about truth and salvation itself. And what do we believe about how God has revealed himself? 
And those are the things that have always been worked out in the ecumenical councils where people, where, you know, the monks and bishops get together and pray and lock themselves behind closed doors and fast. You know, I wonder who has the, the strength of will, the boldness and the resolve to do that these days. Like St. Mark of Ephesus, yeah, exactly, yeah. So, um, continuing. By taking our humanity upon himself, God also assumed the consequences of our sinfulness. Okay, there I go again, repeating myself. Okay, we just read, what is not assumed is not healed. So, to heal and redeem fallen humanity, Christ had to enter into the lowest depths of human existence and break the stranglehold of sin and death upon the human race. This is the significance of the cross. The Son of God descended into the pit of Hades in order to lead mankind up to the heights of heaven. St. Mark the ascetic wrote, All the penalties imposed by the divine judgment upon men for the sin of the first transgression, death, toil, hunger, thirst, and the like, he took upon himself becoming what we are so that we might become what he is. So not only did he have breakfast, like we were talking about recently, not only can he identify us, identify us with us in being a child and going through the mundane things, but also in the, the terrible things that have come as a result of our sin. The incarnation doesn't mean he's guilty of sin. He was sinless. But the incarnation, therefore, is mankind's passage from death to life. In uniting our humanity to himself, the Son of God presents us to his Father, and we share in the life of the Holy Trinity. Quoting from Galatians 4, 4 4-6, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. United with the eternal Son of God through the power of the Holy Spirit, we are able to stand before God, our creator, and say, Our Father, who art in heaven. And that's quite a claim to be able to to say that God is your father. You know, the, the Jews would say, Abraham, we have Abraham as our father. Because Abraham was a man. Understand, and most of us don't understand the subtlety or the boldness. The subtle, subtle boldness. The blatant innuendo. No. Um, of the claim. To, to call God our Father. Because if you call God your Father, it means that you are like Him. So, the work that Christ accomplished once for all in Palestine almost 2,000 years ago is not limited to people who lived back then. For Christ assumed our human nature in its entirety and placed it on the throne of God at the Father's right hand. So that's what we would say is the significance of the, the uh, ascension. A lot of us, when I was growing up, I didn't know what the significance of the ascension is. Do you guys know what the ascension is? After Christ had risen from the dead, he ascended into heaven as a man, as the God-man we call him. So he didn't leave his human body behind and said, you've served your purpose, thank you for that, you can return to the earth. But he ascended as and remains as fully God and fully man. 
in communion with the other persons of the Trinity. And so what, we're, what we see there is the fulfillment of the incarnation, that he re- took on the consequences of our sin in that he became fully man, entered into death and overcame death by death, resurrection, resurrecting, and not only freeing us from the consequences of sin and death, but then taking our humanity, being, again, being fully man, ascending into heaven, showing that our destiny, our calling, is to be as persons with God. And I never, I never knew what that was, other than that Christ couldn't just kind of be like a, a permanent you know, itinerant preacher for the rest of his life because he's not subject to death. And So what's he going to do? You know? Is that the right, the right way to conceptualize it? That like, because this is the first time I've even thought about it like this. That like, I guess you always think of like God becoming man, Christ being on earth, all that happening as like this historical thing. But thinking of it as like that's an eternal reality happening right now. Exactly. Like God is in heaven, assuming personhood, like assuming everything we go through like right now. Is that the right way to think about it? What do you mean? Well, I guess I'm just thinking of, I, I've always thought of it as like this historical thing that happened. Yeah, yeah. And then him ascending to heaven, like there's a significance to that of him ascending to heaven mm-hmm. in his human form. Yeah. You know, showing that that's an eternal reality. That's right. Is that right? Yeah, that is correct. Okay. Yeah. The first time I've ever thought of it. Mm-hmm. That's right, yeah. Yeah, and uh, I mean, it's something that you can... You can chew on too. I think about it, you know, and and even not even not even think about, but contemplate. I mean, marinate, so to speak. You know, you just think about the reality of God assuming the human flesh and ascending, and deifying humanity by doing that. So it was. It wasn't like I said. It wasn't only that He pulled us up out of the mud and cleaned us off, but He fulfilled. You know, showed us what our what our destiny is. He made it possible, and then for us. It, it can be accomplished by the grace of the Holy Spirit. So what does it mean when we talk about looking for the resurrection of the dead? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> well, so we were created, and this is, I don't want to get into too much detail because then it, be, it kind of becomes, like one, one theology professor said, if I, if I start talking about God like as if I know what I'm saying, then I feel like I need to go home and take a shower afterward. You know, it's like, you know, because there's, you know, because we're dealing with something that's a mystery. But, so if we do believe that we were created as a whole, like to be a human person, it's not to be a body with a soul or a soul with a body, spiritual and material somehow, mixed together as if they're separate, but it means to be a whole person. And actually, a big part of our spiritual life is overcoming the artificial distinction between the physical and the material of our own being. But what happens when we die? The soul departs from the body because they are they, they have been separated unnaturally. And so... At the, at the second coming, and we'll talk about the second coming toward the very end of our sessions again. But at the second coming, what will happen is, finally, in the end, the, the dead bodies that have been returned to the earth and have, have uh, decomposed and will be reunited with the soul. 
that we will, and that we'll, we'll actually fulfill our eternal identity, our destiny as whole persons in communion with God. So the resur- that's what the resurrection of the dead is talking about. When the finally, what it means to be fully human will be realized um, when Christ comes again. So I hope that that helps a little bit. I yes. don't know exactly where it is because my mind is nothing right. But there's, I don't remember exactly, but it says that when Christ appears, at, that at the moment we do not know yet what mm-hmm. we might be. But when Christ appears, we will see him. We will be like him and, we'll, we, like and we will him. see him as yeah, he is. We will see him yeah. as he is. Mm-hmm. So that kind of, when I read that, I don't remember exactly where it is. I think it's Romans or. Peter, or uh, what it says that in that section, it kind of remind me of like the resurrection, like when mm-hmm. Christ resurrected, like like we will be just as He is, and mm-hmm. we see Him as yes. Well, and St. Paul says, like, we see as if through a, a glass darkly, you know, right now. It's the same passage. I think it is Romans. So it's, it's kind of like kind mm-hmm. of the, the resurrection of the dead. It kind of, every time when, when we say that, it kind of reminds me of that chapter of mm-hmm. the Bible when it says that, you know, at the moment we do not know. We get a glimpse. I mean, and part of it goes to what you were saying, too. Like, we're... we're before the return of Christ, we're functioning almost as merely historical chronological beings, but that's not our identity. We're, we're, we are, are created to enter into e- an eternal relationship with God. And so we only have a partial perspective, a partial understanding of that now. But when Christ returns, we can fulfill that identity as eternal beings, you know, created to be in communion yeah, with God. That part really make more sense for me about the resurrection of death. Or mm-hmm. how that yeah. And it's something kind of to look forward to, you know. St. Sophronia wrote a book called We Shall See Him As He Is. Yes, that is. So good, you know, incredible reflection on the spiritual life. So, okay, so our Father who art in heaven. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay, and then I talked about the ascension. So Christ was not simply an individual unrelated to the rest of us. Nor did he cease being human after his resurrection and ascension to the Father. In other words, although the incarnation had a beginning in time, the Annunciation to the Virgin Mary and her conception of Christ. So again, get this is a whole thought here. Although the incarnation had a beginning in time, it has no ending. And that's kind of getting at also what you're saying, Jamie, you're thinking about. Um, it's possible for every human being to share the life of the Holy Trinity by being united to Christ because he's already united himself to us and has promised to abide with us forever. The way I like to word it is that he's done everything. He has already accomplished the salvation of humanity. He's done what needs to be done in order for salvation, well, he has saved humanity by uniting himself with, uh, with us. And now we get to choose our life, our calling, our option is to choose whether or not 
We, we want to be saved, <laughs> whether, whether or not we want that salvation to take place in our lives. And this is another thing dealing with kind of time and the mystery of God. But do we want to be a part of, of the salvation of humanity that has already been accomplished in Christ Jesus individually? We have the, the ability to choose. For us to experience the life in the Trinity, however, we must live the life that Christ came to give us. And that's really important because it would be, especially talking theology, doing this God talk, it kind of excites us and it makes makes us think, okay, if I just believe in the right, like God is Trinity and Christ is fully God and fully man, then I, I get a sense of what salvation is and that's enough. And I go to church or something like that, you know, go to church on Sundays. But we must allow his humanity to become our humanity. So his life to become our life, transforming us by the power of the Holy Spirit into his very body. So that has nothing to do with Christianity just being a, a belief system or a theological viewpoint. St. Paul calls the church the body of Christ and explains how we as different human beings can become one body with Christ. In 1 Corinthians 12, he says, For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, we have all been made to drink into the one spirit. Someone, when I was in college, I went to a Christian college and studied Bible and theology. I studied Bible and theology for four years, and by the time I was leaving school, I felt like I just, basically I was starting to learn how to learn. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't really know anything. Like, I don't know. All I know is that I don't know a bunch of stuff. <laughs> oh no, what am I going to do? And instead of giving up, like it would be easy to do, I kept working and reading and studying. But anyway, when I was in, in uh, Bible school, this passage from First Corinthians came up, and uh, I went to a very like outreach-oriented, missionary, missions-oriented school. The school was called, it's called Simpson University, Gateway to World Service, we called it. And they were training missionaries, and it turns out that that didn't end up um, being a good source of income, so they've become more of a liberal arts school and now they have a nursing program and there's not as much emphasis on missions these days. But one uh, young lady that I was doing some kind of outreach street ministry or something with, she said, you know, Jeremy, that was my, that's my legal name, Jeremy, before I was Father Jeremiah. She goes, Jeremy? <laughs> If you were a part of the body of Christ, you would be the foot. Thank you. And that was about it. I get to be a part of the body of Christ. Cool. Like, not the big toe or the little toe or the toenail or something. I get to be the foot. So that was her profound thought. But anyway. So, thus the body of Christ is Christ's continuing presence here on earth. And it's mankind's participation in his work of salvation. What is the word, what's the, what's the, the word that we use for 
our participation in God's work. There's a special word for it. Greek word. A lot of people in the business world use it these days. Huh? No? No? A lot of people like to throw that word around. Another, another a, a translation of it is cooperation. Cooperation. No? I really, I need a bigger what word? Synergy. Synergy. Did I spell it right? Yeah. Synergy. So our participation, our work with God. So, um, <clears throat> by sharing in the, the life of the church, we participate in the life of Christ, and his life becomes our life. We hear in Galatians 2, verse 20 I've been crucified with Christ, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So, unless we willingly partake, of Christ's life, we have no hope of eternal life, for it's only through him that we're united with God the Father. We hear again in the Gospel of John, Christ says, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. When I read that one with an open mind, I realized how important Holy Communion is. And that's something that I had never taken very seriously growing up. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, So he who feeds on me will live because of me. As the sacrament of Christ's presence, the church is not primarily an institution, but a life. The life of the Holy Trinity made accessible to man. Therefore, everything that the church does is a sacrament. So to say that we, you know, like you've probably heard of the seven sacraments. Um, Really, all of life was created to be. A sacrament. Every, because, uh, well, what is a sacrament? Does anyone know what a sacrament is? We use the word mystery a lot too. But what does that? What does that mean? Like you've said before, it's God doing something. Yeah, God doing something. When we're performing a sacrament, God is and and what what? Yeah, I mean, He becomes so. See, God transcends the gulf the between. Uh, the created and the uncreated to enter into creation and do something, to accomplish something. So it's an act of God revealing himself. And we would say then that because everything is created by God, that our encounter with everything that has been made is an encounter with God indirectly. We've artificially separated creation from its creator. We've turned it into our own medium and claimed it as our own rather than loving creator and therefore creation as well. 
we've come to abuse creation. We've, you know, we we do whatever we want with it. But but anyway, as we become healed, as we start to understand that there is no life apart from God, there is nothing that is apart from having been brought into existence by he who is, by God himself. Then you start encountering the world sacramentally. You encounter the mystery of God's presence, you could say, in his creation. And when creation has been corrupted, then you identify that that which was created by God and for him has been stolen away, you know, it's, it's being misused. But it doesn't mean that it somehow has an identity of its own as separate from God. I was reading in the a collection of writings of the church fathers, and I probably wrote it down somewhere, but it would take me a little while to find it. But they said the fathers generally teach that evil, evil has no identity in and of itself. Evil is an absence or it's a rebellion against what is but it is nothing in and of itself. It has its no. It does not have its own identity, apart from being contradictory to what is right, what is good, what is true, and what is real. It's a rejection of accepting what is absolute. Ultimately, a rejection of God. Yeah. Do you think there's a problem? Like, because sometimes I hear the Lord's prayer speak of evil as if it's singular and then sometimes the Lord's prayer is like the evil one right so uh-huh. it's, a, it's a person whether it's yeah. that's the deep devil or demon or something yeah and a lot of times I mean and there's a big debate about which one is a better translation you know a lot of people say because it has the definite article you know that the evil one is a is a better translation and I mean the thing is the, the evil one does have an identity because the devil was created for, I mean, ultimately, originally created as a servant of God who rebelled against God. So there is an evil one, you know, but the only reason that he's referred to as the evil one is because he rejected what is good, not because, again, evil has its own source of life and identity. It's, it only has a contrary one. If that makes sense. Yeah, because everything's created. You have to yeah. go against the creation. You have to go against what's natural. Against that's why I like the language of transgression. It's a weird word, but when if you look at it with nuance, transgression means going against. Like going against nature. And so the Orthodox anthropology is that we're we're not trying to transcend nature. We're not trying to hate nature. You could say, really, there is no such thing as fallen nature, so to speak. I mean, there's just a rebellion against what is actually natural. And so what's happening is we're being healed as human persons, is that we're, we are, our nature is being restored. This is what we were created for, for good, for truth, for love, for union with God. So you're right. And then, see, our, our relationship with creation, or to use that word again, with nature, you know, but with the world, comes to be restored 
and not to go on another like fun fun tangent, but you see like in the lives of the saints many times where people do miraculous things, they exercise authority over the created world and or the the man's relationship with creatures is healed. So that in the lives of saints like Saint Seraphim Masorov and Saint Paisios and others, they and even in the life of Saint Mary of Egypt, where a, a lion helped bury her resting and dig her resting place like the relationship of man with creature is even healed and restored in some cases so the christian is someone who starts to relate to the world as god's creation a lot of times what we try to do is we relate to the world as fallen and that's wrong it means we've given into the idea that there is an identity that can be had apart from God. And there is no identity that can be had apart from God. Even if it's in rebellion against God, it's not apart from God. Do you understand what I'm saying? Sorry, I get excited about things. But because of how powerful God's love is and His desire to reclaim us, to give us an opportunity to, to restore the image that we have, that has been shattered that has been tainted soul leader but not destroyed see it has not been destroyed in us yet <laughs> and that's why we're here working out our salvation together because this beautiful work of salvation is taking place in our lives so anyway so we say even so there are particular liturgical acts that we do like you were talking about like when we do baptisms when we have holy communion we do the anointing with oil called holy unction. Ordination. There are specific liturgical acts that we do that are referred to as sacraments, sacred acts or mysteries, as we like to say, using the Greek origin. There's no Greek word sacrament. That comes from a Latin term, but we, use, we like the word mystery because it is the mystery of God's participation in the fallen world. He's in breaking and doing something. And that is my favorite definition of a sacrament. God is doing something. But God is, and then God is always doing something. But um, anyway, the life of the Holy Trinity is made accessible to men. And therefore, everything that the church does is a sacrament. And that is, um, it's both the revelation of the life of the Holy Trinity to man and man's participation in that life. See, there's that synergy. There's that cooperation. The will of God and the will of man being united. Do you remember St. Paisios calling it like two wings? The wing of man and the wing of the, the wing of man's will and the wing of God's will, both flapping together so that we can ascend, we can fly, you know, we can be who we truly are. Nothing which directly pertains to the life of the church is in any way accidental or unimportant. Everything within the church works together to sing the same hymn of praise, Holy, Holy, Holy Lord of hosts, Heaven and earth are full of thy glory. All that the church is and all that she does proclaims the dogma or the belief of the Holy Trinity. And when we talk about, when we hear that Holy Trinity, we automatically think love. Love, not just a, a, a philosophical concept that God is somehow up there. There's three of them. But God is a perfect communion of persons. 
And when you think Trinity, I want you to think love. It's really important. This isn't just, like I said, it isn't just a philosophical concept. So all that the church does and um, is and does proclaims the dogma or the belief that we have in the Holy Trinity and, and invites mankind to fulfill its destiny in the likeness of the God of love, which means to participate in the love of God. The foundation of the Orthodox faith, the absolute bedrock of our salvation is the Trinity and the Incarnation. And if God is not the God of love, then there is no true purpose for our existence. Then, then we would, our destiny would be just annihilation then. Why, why, why try? Why? Why toil? Why care? Father Seraphim Rose wrote a, a book on, on uh, nihilism, saying this is the direction we're going, to just the absolute meaninglessness of everything. But, we, but, but man wants to live. Why? Because we were created for communion with God. And again, the depth of our longing is calling out, crying for the depth of life in God, which is um, the Holy Trinity. If God is not the God of love, there's no purpose for human existence. And uh, for, for between the Trinity and hell, there lies no other choice, says the Orthodox theologian Vladimir Lossky. If Christ is not God made man, then there's no hope for our salvation. For mankind could never share in the life of God had God not first taken upon himself the life of man. If there's, if there's no escaping God in the creative world, mm-hmm. how is there escaping God in the hereafter? It's a good question. You could read, there's a little booklet that we have out there called um, The Fire of God's Divine Love. And, um, and the, really, the, like in a nutshell, the Orthodox, the traditional teaching is that um, the experience of people who have rejected God's love is not, uh, so the suffering, the eternal suffering, so to speak, of people who have rejected God's love is not because of the absence of God but it's because of their willful resistance to God's love. I think Father Bernstein's yeah. Heaven and Hell. Yeah, his, his Heaven and Hell, his booklet on that, The Fire of God's Divine Love, is really helpful. It's, it's nice, and it touches on that. Yeah. But so, it is, so no, it's not. You could kind of experience hell now. Yeah, absolutely. Right. 100%. You can experience heaven, and you can experience hell now. Right. Based on the, the way you choose to relate to God and and creation. I mean, what is? We, we create hell for ourselves. Hell isn't other people. Hell is me, honestly. Striving to, to thinking that I could live a life in, of independence, of separation from God and others. And that's why the healing that we need comes through entering into communion with God and others. And... Uh, there's a little story that Father Thomas Hopko would tell, especially when he's working with kids. He'd say, think of it this way, and we'll talk about, oh, it's after two, I better stop. But anyway, he says, it's like a little kid who says, uh, before dinner, I want some candy. Do you guys remember this story? 
I want some candy. And the, and the mom says, no, Johnny, you can't have any candy now, but you, you can have some after dinner. I want candy now. No, we're not having candy now. But just wait until after dinner and then you can have some. I want it now. Well, you can't have any now. Mm. And then they have dinner. And then the candy bowl comes out and they're passing it around. And then it gets to him and he goes, I don't want any. Because he didn't get it when he wanted it. You know, this is a willful rejection of what you claim to want, but on your terms, you know. And he said, he, he said something like, you know, you could say hell is, is getting what you, what you at least have claimed to want, you know, getting what you want for all of eternity and not being able to do anything about it. What I want, my will, not thy will. It's like saying to God, my will be done, not thy will be done. You know, the book on mere Christianity, it's not an orthodox book, by, but by um, C.S. Lewis, is actually really good on some of these kinds of topics too. The mindset with which we approach God and self-awareness, which a lot of us lack, <laughs> you know, in approaching the, the, the thought of, of um, our, our relationship with God and even just how our mind works. We, we tend to approach God as, as consumers oftentimes, like someone who gets, to, who gets something out of an exchange, a transaction. And that's not what happens when you enter into a relationship of communion of love. So last line, and then I need to let you guys go. The Trinity and the Incarnation. And I didn't even tell you what the Incarnation is or means, but we'll talk about it more. The Trinity and the Incarnation Everything in the church revolves around these two doctrines, these two beliefs that we have. In short, the church is the incarnation of the life of the Holy Trinity. And the church is the experience of salvation itself, the life that we live together, bound to Christ, working out our salvation together. Okay, I need to let you guys go. So through the prayers of our Holy Fathers, may the Lord Jesus Christ, our God, have mercy on us and save us. Amen. When we get together, we'll, do, uh, we'll talk about the sign of the cross next time. Um, and then we'll start talking about the Holy Trinity. Uh, we do not have a session next week, though, because of the special financial presentation. So please plan on going to that, even though it may not be that exciting to you. Um, you, can, uh, you can go and suffer through it because it's an important part of being a part of this community. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a reality. You know, like, we've got to keep the lights on and we've got to do, you know, it's, a, it's real, it's practical, it's important. So thank you for honoring that. And uh, I'll, I will miss having a session, but God willing, we'll continue the following week and just keep it going throughout, from that point on, throughout all of Great Lent. And uh, we'll take a little break for a couple weeks, starting at Palm Sunday. But I'll send out all those details to you eventually. And then those of you who are preparing for baptism on Lazarus Saturday, there's a, quite a group of you, most of our catechumens right now, I think. Um, I'm going to start engaging in conversation with you now about some of the details, like identifying patron saints, identifying sponsors, um, planning ahead. So be on the lookout for, for uh, email correspondence from me. All right. God bless you all.
Go in peace.